All right, Story Forward listeners, I am here with Skylar Locatelli. Uh, as you know, this season we are talking about stories from the world of music, and that doesn't just include singers and guitar players, it includes the people who make the music get to you. So we have Skylar here, he's the owner of Freak Out Records. And what I want to talk to him about today is not Freak Out Records, but his life instead. So Skylar, welcome to the Story Forward podcast. Thank you for having me, Larry. It's great to be here. Now, the thing that I'm interested in about you is a person who decides he loves the world of music and finds his place in it. So really where I wanted to start was the earliest memories you have. Maybe that's asking a lot. But I guess in a more general sense, when you got a feeling that this was a place you wanted to spend time in, that you loved music enough to start considering, maybe I want to make this a bigger part of my life than just a recreational escape. Yeah, that's tough because music has always just meant so much to me and my family since I was a kid. Well, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Mm, Not necessarily a musician, but I I was into sports. I was a big skateboarder, tennis player, so I kind of went went down that road. But music was one of those things, you know, as a kid, you have a lot of different interests, but music was the one thing that always kept kept with me. In the the background or the forefront? Um, both. I mean, it started, it's kind of always been at the forefront, to be honest. Going to shows, my dad took me to my first concert when I was eight. Uh, what was it? Depeche Mode on the Violator Tour in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> Eight-year-old kid on the lawn just screaming to go home the whole time. Just mascara, the whole thing. <laughs> but it is a pretty cool show to t- say that that was my first For an show. eight-year-old, yeah. My first real show that I went on my own, though, was um, I grew up in Twin Falls, Idaho. Uh, two hours away from here. Shout out Twin Falls. Yeah. And, um, you know, back in the 90s, you get these reggae bands, like these awesome. So Burning Spear was the first, like, show I bought a ticket to and went to. Without your parents? Without my parents, yep. And I was probably like 12 or something. But at that time, like for all of us, or like 99% of us, music was something that you listened to, that you enjoyed, that you pursued. Uh, that made your life a little better. Yep. You, at 12-year-old, you didn't think, you know, maybe this is where I want to spend my life. Not so much. So that shift for me was in college. Um, I, I went to school on a tennis scholarship, and I was like playing tennis my entire life and quit that and joined the radio station. And okay, that Wait, was my shift. Back up here a second. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know about the tennis part. Uh-huh. And I want to explore that a little bit because that sport... Um, not above, but almost above all others, requires a sense of commitment, individual commitment, Yep. Uh, that does lead to a lot of burnout. Is that what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, yeah, not only did I play uh, individual competitive tennis, and then I played high school tennis, and then I was a part of Team Idaho. Um, uh, yep. And I went to London in uh, my senior year of high school for a tennis program. So when you were a teenager playing tennis, were you thinking of like, I can play professional tennis? I wanted to. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, at one point I was just had my eyes setting on playing for the university of Oregon. I wanted to go play there. I just wasn't good enough. Well, and I was going to say, and that sport in particular is a sport where you find out you're not good enough at a very young age. Yeah. 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 Uh, although I am a high school state champion, so that was that was the probably the biggest glory moment in the in the tennis career. That's fantastic. Yeah. You you got that championship. Were you already over the hump though? Were you already like, oh, 
Yes, and I'd done a lot of individual competitive tennis, like not through the high school stuff, and traveled all over the country to play bigger tournaments. Do you and stuff. do you have your I played and beat so and so story? Um, no, not like that's huh. the professional or anything. <laughs> I wish I beat Andy Roddick. Uh, I beat Andy Roddick <laughs> several times growing up. No, not at all. So that's really interesting. So that it, it could have gone another way. What mm. what made you decide? to be completely done with tennis and not decide, you know what, I still love tennis, I wanna find my place in tennis. Right, well, it was, I was a freshman in college and I went to Colorado Mesa University and it's a D2 school and I had a pretty basic scholarship and it was a new coach, it was a team that I didn't know and it was 5.30 a.m. practice as a freshman in college and 3.30 to 5 p.m. twice a day off season, I was like, F this. <laughs> um, in college, I just want to hang out and do not this anymore. So how quickly after that did you just become, did you start DJing? Right away, actually. Yeah, I got involved in the, and in, in I got my own radio show. It was called the Electronic Lounge. I was pretty into electronic music. I still am. Um, and, but I had a daytime show and, uh, you know, so I played all kinds of music. And how much of what you got out of that was sort of balance out the joy of being around music all the time with the kick of talking on the radio? Yeah, yeah. It was both. The thing that I liked the most was the new music, mm -hmm. you know, because we got the promos and, and then I had these like relationships with the different back then radio was different where, you know, these people, radio promotional companies would call DJs and talk to them about hey what do you think of the new ads or the the new Modest Mouse record came out like tell me what you think about it what's your favorite song and like that camaraderie and then getting the CD and playing it when it first came out before it's out it was just, it's fun and it's a little bit of a rush <laughs> right I yeah. mean I used to write about music in Seattle in the 90s mm. and being on the guest list was the greatest perk of all time right, right. like you guys go ahead and wait in line and you were the kid in college who got to say, have you heard this yet? Yep, exactly. And no, and there's still, I still think about certain records that came out during that time period that like were, were influential, you know. And how much during that time did you get your first peek behind the curtain of what the music business looks like? Yeah, I mean, I would, not right away. I mean, it, it was still a small station, but, um, and then my senior year i was like an assistant music director and so got a little more involved in programming and other djs and scheduling and making promotional spots which is now what i do for kexp is i <laughs> sell radio spots <laughs> so and i was going to ask concurrently what were you majoring in and what did you think you were going to end up doing i started as a computer science major and had no idea what that meant. I just liked computers for some reason. Yeah, all I know but, is that doesn't jibe with 5.30 a.m. tennis practice. Nope, nope. And then I just decided I got a business management degree. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't know, it just seemed like an easy thing for me to do. And I was passionate about owning and operating my own business already at a young age. So you so, wanted to own and operate a business. Yep. What yep. did you think that business might be when you graduate? Let's back up a little bit. You yep. graduate from Colorado Mesa, 22 years old. So it's 2004? 2004, yep. 
What were your initial thoughts? What were you going to do? Yeah, well, another huge shift in my life was my junior year. I studied abroad in Italy. Okay. And that was like a major sort of shift, you know, study abroad. Go go away. Come back smoking cigarettes. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, And, you know, see life and culture. And I learned how to speak Italian. And then I came back and I was just like, my head was in Italy all the time, you know. So then did you go after you graduated? No. So I graduated and I moved to Seattle right away. Um, And I got a job uh, managing an Italian gelateria, an ice cream shop downtown Seattle. Um, And I eventually became co-owner of that business. And I was there for nine and a half years. That's right. You know, Mm -hmm. that's in my notes somewhere and I'm looking for it, (laughs) but I can't remember. I can't. What was the name of it? It's called Gelatiamo. Okay. Backing up just a little bit, the decision to move to Seattle. Yep. Was that as simple as it's the big city that I've heard of? Um, not so much. The, the, it was a family thing. My, my mom had moved there right after I graduated high school. Okay. And so I was visiting Seattle in the like 2001, 2, 3 range on Christmas breaks and stuff. And it was, so, a, it, it was a pretty seductive place back then. Yeah, yeah. My mom lived right downtown, and so and then I got a job downtown, and so I spent most of my, you know, half of my Seattle life downtown, mm-hmm. which was cool. <clears throat> and you want to give a plug for your mom's book? Yeah, sure, sure. My mom wrote a memoir. Mm-hmm. It's called Petting Tigers. And uh, another interesting fact: uh, uh, she was raised a Jehovah's Witness, and so it's a story of her life in that and she was in it until she was basically my age now hmm. so but you weren't raised a witness or maybe I you were. was until yeah. I was about four uh, my mom got out of it then so I my brother I have two older brothers and they they kind of um, you know got especially my older brother was you know in sixth grade or something when she got out so he was already giving talks being brainwashed you know, that's and how that the, works. And just as a quick aside, so the impact of that on your very young life was no holidays, right? Yeah, no holidays. Yeah, I think uh, I had to uh, reject a Valentine in first grade and went home crying. And I think that was my mom's uh, cue to get out of get out of there. <laughs> my religion makes my six year old son cry. That's right. Yeah, <clears throat> that's just awful. Uh, but we're not here to judge. Um, so let's go back to Seattle, um, and you're working at. You're not working at. You're co-owning. Yep. I'm not going to try to butcher the word. I'll just say a place that makes gelato. That's right. And I guess at this point, where is music in your life? Yeah. And no. So yeah, Seattle was like access to shows. Right. You know that. And and I immediately, I met one of my best friends. uh, My first sort of like music industry contact. Um, He. was the talent buyer for the Triple Door Theater, uh, which was right across the street from where I worked. And so KXB was doing day sessions there uh, and they just do shows all the time. And so that was, he was like my, he was my guest, my first guest list. And he, nice. he remained my contact for all the venues in Seattle for years until I got to know everybody. And, and, and do you think that can accelerate um, your entry or anyone's entry into the business when the first time you're going to shows a lot, it's on the guest list. Yeah. I mean, it might've turned out different if you just, I, I just like going to shows. Here's 10 bucks. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. I I still like to buy tickets too <laughs> at times, but I definitely, you know, for the most part, get guests listed. I guess what I mean though is that you were seeing, like your first mass experience of going to live music, you were seeing it at a slightly different angle. Yeah, yep, you had sure. You had friends there, you knew people. I had friends there and I knew people for sure. And yeah, and I'm, I, yeah, definitely you're just, I was constantly going to shows, you know, and, and living downtown too. Like I was right across the street from the show box and probably seen 100, 200 shows there. By 2004, was that area still incredibly sketchy? Yes, yes, okay. yeah. And it's kind of back to that again. Now, oh, it is. You know, with the homeless issue, it's really, really <clears throat> sad and, and just not a really fun place to be. There's a documentary movie that was shot in Seattle in the 70s. I can't remember the name of it, but it was about homeless kids who lived on that corner. Oh, wow. It's really fascinating. I watched it recently, and I can't remember the name. Shoot, I wish I could. Poor hosting by me. Um, but back to you. You own the gelato place. You co-own the gelato yep. place. That must be taking 50 hours a week. Yes, it was. And yeah, so, yeah, that's this is a really pivotal point in my my sort of music career because um you know i stayed there for nine years but in towards the early 2010 zone um i started to really get into modern psychedelic rock music Mm -hmm. and i found out about austin psych fest which is now called levitation and went there in 20 12 or 13 something like that and i was like seattle doesn't have a psych rock festival like i want to do something you know like this and so i reached out to my friend scott from the triple door and we did a two-day um psychedelic rock festival at the triple door which was not a traditional place for loud space rock is (laughs) is that the place is it in ballard no, no, no. It's right downtown on 2nd Union, and it's a dinner theater. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. <clears throat> I don't know what I was thinking About of. About 250 people, uh, booths, and beautiful stage and sound. So a lot of people can look at, can, can get that germ of an idea. Yeah. And go, boy, you know what we need? We need this. But I would say 2% of them will follow through on it. <laughs> right. What do you think at that point made you follow through? Yeah, it was just, I, I wanted, you know, I wanted... To curate something, I wanted to really bring my passion for this style of music and bring a new life to it in a different space. And it was super fun. I mean, we we had twenty plus bands over two days, and um, Silver <clears throat> Apples. We booked Rain Parade. You, yeah, that wow, was, that was pretty effing cool. R.I.P. David Roback. Yeah. Um, how success? I guess how successful was it in terms of mm-hmm. attendees, and how hard was that learning curve? Yep, it it was really hard. Um, but I had we had two other people involved as well, so there was a group of four of us that kind of planned and booked it all out. Um, in terms of success, it was a it was a curatorial success and an attendance level success, not a financial success, but. Um, I basically got the triple door to finance the whole thing. So I didn't personally lose any money off of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But we did it two years. And then like the team kind of um, 
you know, started to disband a bit and we were talking about maybe doing it in a different venue. And that's when I met Guy Keltner. Okay. Mm -hmm. Give us a little background on Guy Keltner for anyone listening or the many people in the audience who yes. may not know. Yeah, he's the front man for the band Acid Tongue and the original founder of Freakout Festival. Mm -hmm. So he had started doing Freakout Festival um, the same year that I did my And fest. explain just a little bit more in detail what the Freakout Fest was. It started out as a super DIY thing in Guy's house, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is which is what I'm sorry, which is always kind of amazes me that you two came together because you're approaching the same thing from very different points of view. Yep, yeah, absolutely, no, totally. And I'm I'm in this like fancy dinner theater doing my thing with a crazy, crazy light show and you know, very like legacy artists. And he's booking his buddies' bands from Portland and L.A. and Seattle and beyond to play his house, and and so you know, I we we had two people. It was it's one of those like like you should know this person, mm -hmm. and that happened. Two of our friends in the music industry. Again, this goes back to knowing people there, and they're you know connect constantly connecting people to people. Mm -hmm. And two different folks said, "You and guys should know. He's into what you do." And I hadn't been to his thing yet. And that was like 2015, early 2015. <clears throat> and were there things you'd learned from how Guy put on a festival versus how you did? Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Good I mean, answer. Yeah. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Like in, in like, you know, all, like all festivals or, or events, there's a sort of trajectory and growth, hopefully. And so when we kind of... When I came in, I helped him put put the pieces together. You know, I had this business savvy mind. Like these guys were the artists, mm -hmm. and you know that's that's kind of my specialty is just getting people together and doing the you know you do the best thing that you can do, so you don't have to do that. And then, how many years did you put that on with Guy before you decided to turn it into a record label? So only one, one year. So oh, um, that's I, quite a leap. Yeah, no. So this is the story of what happened in 2015. His his fest was in December and it was already happening. He'd already curated everything. The show was going and I showed up. We meet and we were talking about doing my thing at Numos. And he's like, well, hey, I'm already doing my fest. Why don't you just help out with that? And then we'll let's maybe decide if we want to do something after that. So how come you didn't say, well, why don't you help out with my fest? <laughs> well, I, I kind of did, but I was also like, like I wanted to do something. I wanted to like see him in action first mm -hmm. before we actually, because he was working for Numos at the time. Right. And I was talking about hosting my event there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so I kind of just helped out with hospitality and artist stuff at that, that year. And then January of 2016, um, Ian and Guy and I, Ian was a, another co-founder of Freak Out, who's now, um, he's also founding member of Acid Tongue too, but he um, kind of phased out, moved to LA. He's not a part of the label business anymore. But uh, I went to those guys and, you know, I'm five, six years older than them. And I was like, that was great. What do you want to do? And that was then out of that conversation, we decided to create a label. Can I back up a little bit when you went into sure. that conversation? Actually, backing up even further, when you are 
collaborating with someone like that, an early collaboration, and you're watching things unfold, is your mind working to figure out ways to make it better, to make it work better? Are you getting ideas the whole time? Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and then when you met with them, did you already have the idea in your head? To do the label? Yeah. Um, not so much, just because I'm, you know, I'm not a recording artist. So the fact, like, the fact of, or the need was there with these guys. They have their own music, their own bands, our friends' bands, and that was kind of like, and he had already released some under a different label mm -hmm. and and so that was just kind of like the initial need was like well we've got some records we, we could put out let's let's do that and is there ever a sense of that maybe we could make our living doing this too um well that's the intent right uh you know and i yeah and hopefully someday that is mm -hmm. that is the living but i think <clears throat> excuse me the um the festival component has really like potentially making that a, a, a reality down the line by having that, or we need a, you know, we need our bleach, mm. you know, but that seems to, it, it, it ramps <laughs> things up and complicates things right. at the same time. Right. Right. Yep. Um, so in your, so in your life at this time, then this 2015, you're a grown up boy yeah. and you own a business already. But you had to make a decision, it sounds like, at some point, unless I'm reading too much into it, but you had to offload the business. Yes, not for, not really for bandwidth reasons or anything. It was, my time was up at the, I had my former partner and I just were butting heads and, mm. you know, I was getting into my 20s and I was ready to commit to that, to that life for, for good. But, um, you know, I, I got out of that and I got a job doing sales for Cafe Vita, a Seattle coffee roasting company, and was still doing music on the side, all, you know, in the fests and the label. And then you ended up at KEXP? Yep. When was that? Um, tw early 2017. And when you got that job, did you look for that job because you wanted to further immerse yourself in music? Yes, I wanted a job. I wanted a career in music. Mm -hmm. and, and it was like... It was the right thing. I'm a biz guy, you know, business salesperson already. I was doing national sales for Cafe Vita and they were looking for, a, you know, my role at the time was an account executive and um, it was a perfect fit. I was like, I can work for a radio station and do what I do, you know, this, without being a <clears throat> DJ or in programming or something. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's actually a... Um it's something I, I stress a lot when I talk to people is finding your place in the world. Mm -hmm. And what you just said really resonates because you're not a DJ, you're not a performer, but you're kind of the backbone. Yep. Without you, it doesn't work. Yep. So when you got into that, I've known a lot of people who have switched industries and when they switch to the industry that it turns out they love, a light goes on. Yeah. Was that the sense? Did you like, I'm loving selling this airtime way more than selling coffee? Yeah, for the most part. And, and two, um, I also, I like to be innovative and I feel like I'm doing that at the station right now. And that's keeping me energized there. I, I don't like stagnation. I don't want to sell widgets for, for my, you know, right. It's more meaningful. And yeah. And, and, and there it's, it, it's a sales position, but it's all about partnerships and that's what I'm good at is, is really, you know, not just 
selling you a vacuum. It's like you're 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 kind of selling them a key to the to the KXB community essentially, and that's a lot of fun. And is there any cross pollination between that job and um, Freakout? All the time. <laughs> I, I've had the uh, conflict of interest conversation uh, uh, with 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 the station. Of, uh, you know, how do you ride the line? I mean, you can't discourage them from playing Freakout records. No, no. And I, since I'm not in programming, there's nothing. You know, it's more like about the business relationships I have, or you know, representing Freakout with you know with KEXP things, and so um, I'm also a client. You know, oh. I, I buy airtime myself. Oh, my. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of um, odd, but not. I'm supporting them as well. So, yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Is that sustainable? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the way that we the you know, the route now is that I'm not the I'm not the point person mm. you know, guy can deal with. with OK, you know, they're cool with that. It's like, you know, I don't need to be the spokesperson to the station i see but i've been on air on air talking about freak out festival and now i don't think i can do that anymore you just have a guy do it yeah yeah going back to that first record um what did you know about making records um not much you know at all definitely and you know just being in the music community in general and knowing other um performing artists and things like that just kind of research and figuring out pressing plants and distribution. What was the um, hardest part? I think the hardest part, and it still kind of is, is distribution and ultimately making a record successful and and meeting or exceeding an artist's expectations. That sounds like the part you'd be, that would be your special skill to bring to the plate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we do we do what we can. I mean, it's I mean, we go into a long conversation about uh, the success of of a record and the whole process and all that, and it's it's tough, you know. It's you know, you're you're dealing with with people who are creating, you know, their art that's also a product, and that you know they want it to to do the best it can do mm -hmm. and it's also rock and roll and that's really hard well and and yeah and they have a lot invested in it emotionally yeah yeah and when the first record came out describe to me the feeling of accomplishment versus um selling gelato selling airtime selling yeah. coffee well it was bubblegum vinyl for smoky bright's hot candy um and it was an amazing feeling you know, they like immediately they're a band that we still work with and to put out their second LP um, and, you know, two more EPs and their latest LP after that. It's watching that and watching their success and their journey sort of slowly going has been super gratifying. I'll bet. And for you personally, um, how is the how is the label growing? Is it growing according to your expectations? Um, yeah, I think so. The, a, a guy and I kid around because we have this conversation every every year almost. Like, uh, I think we're going to drop the label and just do the festival. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow we keep getting brought back to it. And, and you know, COVID was tough. But also uh, we put out three records from lockdown to June and July, we had three of our biggest records we've ever done and uh, had to deal with that. And it sucked. 
Yeah, and, so, and and what's the breakdown as far as time commitment and energy commitment between the festival and the the label? Well, the festival is is I don't know now it's just kind of all consuming. Um, we usually start working on it in January and it happens in November, um, and the team's grown, which has been amazing, and uh, we now have we have a festival director. Guy and I are the owners. And then we have a community engagement director, a production manager, a digital content coordinator, and a team of volunteers that, that uh, help us put it all on. And how many of those people are full-time employees? Um, nobody really. They're all contracted. Okay. So, Good. you know, they, 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 they all have other, other things. And hopefully we can, you know, continue to, to grow and, and, and you know, at, at provide more work for them. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, like. it definitely complicates things more when they're in-house employees, though, huh? As, yeah. as a business. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the employee route is, is hard. I mean, just we're not, you know, we're, we don't have the type of revenue to deal with taxes and employees and insurance and all right, that. Right, right. So. Well, we're running out. Of, we're getting close to yeah. running out of time. So let's look toward the future then. Sure. What, uh, not to be too, too out there, but you know, where would you like to see this go? And in your, when you lie in bed at night, do you think what I'd like to be is Jimmy Iovine and just own a record label that makes tons of money and go on American Idol? Ah, oh, that's a good question. And the answer is probably no, but I wouldn't turn it down. Yeah. Um, I think that I do, I love my job at KXP. I do, but I, I would love to just you know, I, I think my, my head would be a lot clearer if I was just doing the label and the festival. But that's the, that's the idea for us. I mean, we're growing. We're, we're doing our major marquee event this November. And then uh, we have a bunch of stuff in the works to, to add to that. Another two-day Seattle event hmm. at the new Crocodile um, the week after the next tree fort. Okay, um, so that'll be in March. That'll be April 1. April, okay. April 1 and 2. And we're working on an L.A. event as well, another two-day thing there, and um, some other stuff, too. And then putting on shows frequently and records. We have, a, like, six six or seven new records starting to queue up that we got to deal with. So, And are you a serial entrepreneur? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, describe serial in that. In that well, you've in started two businesses. <laughs> Well, I didn't start the first one. Oh, you bought into it. That's right. I bought in, yep. Do you see, could you see more down the line, I guess, is where I was going with that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, I think subsidiaries of freak out, you know, and other things that we can do, it could, you know, I love what Treefort's doing with, they have their own venue now. Yeah. Like, could we get to that level where we have our own club spot? freak out? Yeah. You know, my dream would be a, a studio loft recording recording studio venue uh, italian cafe <laughs> all in one building throw it all in there coffee music record store that's um, great so so when you look down the line this though there could be future businesses this focus is kind of an, a culmination you've arrived at where you want to be i think so i think so yeah i'm feeling good about it Fantastic. I'll be 40 next year. And so, I, you know, the next 10 years of my life, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Right. That's you when know? your metabolism slows down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
Because I start making better decisions finally. <laughs> well, it seems like you've made some pretty good ones so far. <laughs> thank you, Larry. Well, thank you, Skylar, for yeah. coming on the Story Forward podcast. Uh, thanks to Tree Fort for having us. Thanks to all of you for showing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'm uh, always happy to talk to you, Larry. Always happy to have you. Yeah. All right. Cheers, all right. Man. Thanks.